you doing? <laughs> what are you talking about? That's a inflammatory accusation. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Capiche Filmcast. Stephen Barry here, joined by my fellow Bond aficionados. All three of them this time. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm joined by Gordon Webster on my right. Hello. Good to see you guys again. Welcome to my humble sanctuary. That is most a, we've awkward. had a change of venue, haven't we? Gordon is in the most awkward podcasting position I've ever seen. It's brilliant. <laughs> I feel quite comfortable back here. <laughs> it's a very lounge position. You're kind of like, yeah. like a Bond girl. Gordon Fiona Volpe. So I'll introduce the other people while, uh, before I forget. Francis Murphy, of course, 002, whatever he's used to be, has returned. Yep. Yo, yo, yo. And uh, thank you for that, Fran. And of course, Steve McCall. Good afternoon. Good afternoon yourself. This is a this is an, an earlier podcast. Normally, it's a bit later. We've been doing them, uh, you know, just the way it's worked out. But it's fantastic. We've got everyone here. Nice afternoon. It's not uh, how many hours you've been up, Steve? Since uh, uh, so my alarm went off at three. What time is it now? So it's just no, over twi- two. twelve hours or something. Just over, aye, just over twelve hours or so. And did um, you um, did you have the the James Bond, the, the Scottish showers they call it, the, the the freezing? I think it's the blazing hot shower followed by the freezing cold shower. It's good for the body, apparently. The freezing cold shower at about ten o'clock this morning when I went for a swim. So I'm I'm, I'm cold showered. I'm caffeinated. I'm awake. <laughs> I shouldn't fall asleep, possibly through the film. We'll see what happens. Good stuff. I should mention this is another episode of the Bond Daft cast, or Bond Daft podcast. Film number five we're going to be talking about, You Only Live Twice, released in 1967. Uh, yeah, let's... Uh, well, last time we started the Thunderball podcast with Bond, um, sort of new Bond news, let's um, introduce the new Bond news uh, music. Right, uh, <laughs> <laughs> who's, who's got the best news jingle? There's a guy in my work that might be able to record a good jingle for us. We'll, um, really? Something we'll look into. Oh, that has to be done. He does voiceovers and stuff. That's fantastic. I'd love that. I'd love a little section, a little jingle music for every new section. We'll have to, have to actually have new sections. But um, yeah, there is. I've not actually got any new Bond, <laughs> new Bond 25 for. Um, no time to die news. Has MD heard anything? The one thing no I time saw. To die. Oh, Jesus, man! This is what how happens far behind miss. are you? Whoa! <laughs> We're gonna have to play the. Is that what it's called? No time to die. Yes. yes. It's not a very good name, is it? <laughs> oh, no time to die. Or um, other Bond news? I mean, have any of you guys been done anything particularly Bondy? I haven't been watching the news, by the way. And he like, also hasn't been listening to our last episode, evidently. Yeah, I've you know, I've been, I've been studying. <sighs> A lot. See, I, I keep meaning to go back to the the spot which I nearly got to from from Russia with Love when the previous films were reviewed. The, the actual to actually get to the location in Scotland, I almost got to, and for various reasons, um, I wasn't able to get up to the exact spot. But uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to going back there. But yeah, I was just thinking, I, what have you guys been up to? Like anything remotely bonding at any point? It's not often I do much that's kind of bonding. I've not worked my way out of a train with a laser this week, unfortunately. <laughs> not this week. <laughs> you were travelling around in a sort of camp, 70s camper van. Yeah. Um, has that I, I, been I, in a Bond film? As, as a, a VW camper van is so iconic. I can imagine it popping up somewhere in a Bond film, but mm. I, has it? Uh, I turn to the experts. turn to you. No, but what's it you call the, the weird-looking Citroens? There was one for your eyes only that Bond ends up in. It's Citroens, it's... <laughs> 
forget the name of it, the the, dip, the well dodgy looking early eighties with the big cars. lamp plates on yeah, the front. Yeah, was it called? It was in a bright yellow one. Yeah, I know the one you mean. They I don't like recall being in a yeah. VW camper though. <laughs> I mean, the thing is, a camper's kind of a gadgety vehicle, so it kind of fits, doesn't it? It does. It's it's a vehicle, but with cooking and sleeping facilities, so it feels slightly bondy. And the with, Scottish with him, uh, like eject just <clears throat> seen rear built with windscreen. Yeah, I didn't right. find that. Nah, I got it stuck in a ditch, but I didn't find out <laughs> if it was bulletproof. That's not quite bonding, I would say. <laughs> oh, it was. It's the least suave thing I have ever done. I had to be helped out by twelve strangers from a campsite. It Fantastic. was just embarrassing. And I'm glad you're able to tell the story on this podcast. Yes. <laughs> the only new Bond thing I did see today that I was going to bring up, just because it made me it actually made me laugh quite a lot was a photograph published I in... I did see this. Did you see this? Yes. Published in a newspaper this week. I won't name the newspaper, but it does rhyme with mainly fail. Yeah. It was a photo of Daniel Craig. Captain underneath said, Daniel Craig relaxes with a female assistant yeah. on the filming of the new Bond film. The female assistant was Barbara Broccoli. Yeah. Now, who is Barbara Broccoli? She 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 runs she's in she's the boss, isn't she? Basically. Yeah, one of the, the two producers or executive producers. She produces the damn film. And yeah, this is a, this uh, obviously <clears throat> newspaper caption writer whatever thought, oh it's it's Bond, he's with a woman. She's obviously just a runner or an assistant on the film. <laughs> Literally couldn't have been any more insulting to I know, I the know. legend of uh, of Bond films. I know. It's embarrassing. I did see that. Uh yeah, that's the only news I, I had as well. Um, yeah, it's... Honestly, whoever put that together is going to be getting, like, rinsed to death. I'm sure they're oh, listening they... to this and they're obviously <laughs> blushing at the... Uh, oh, the... I would damn well hope so. <laughs> yeah. I mean, talk about a faux pas at the wrong time, do you know what I mean? Because they're making such an effort to try and um, bring people in to, to be in charge. Probably of, not that paper. You know? Well, yeah, but I mean, it's it's crazy, like, you know, you would have thought that that would have been quite a basic bit of research to do, who is this in the photo, or who is, you know what I mean? But You'd ask the question, that's what got me. Assumption. I wouldn't publish a photo of a random person I didn't know of. Uh-huh. Um, just, yeah, you don't know what trouble you're going to run into, so. But that that made me laugh this week. Yeah. It's good that Bond is starting to get back into the news a bit, because it's not quite the phenomenon it was like in the 60s and 70s, things like... Um, maybe like you know, Marvel comic type movies have taken over a bit from Bond. It's Star Wars, the Star Wars fever's kind of come back a bit as well because of the new Star Wars films, whereas Bond's kind of gone the back burner. So there's not the Bond mania there used to be. I mean, we were me and Fran were talking about the great Bond museum that they once temporarily had in Glasgow in the, the late nineties, and we we mentioned it in the Goldfinger podcast. How cool would it be just if there was a permanent Bond museum just somewhere in the UK with loads mm-hmm. of the props from the films? <laughs> I'd go. Yeah, it was, and it would be so successful. Yeah, I would go. Imagine like theme park rides again. based on things like bits of the movies oh. and stuff. That'd be great. It does. It's an interesting point you brought up. Actually, we haven't really touched on that on the sort of like wider scale of films in general. You know, like your Star Wars and your Marvel films, where Bond is now. That's an interesting well, idea. Is, is Bond? Got that same? I mean, of course it does. The legacy of all the different films still has. Some yeah. weight to it, but it certainly has deteriorated a little well, over time. It's weird, I had a, un- a unique perspective on this, I suppose, because when Skyfall came out, I was in the States, and it, it, you get used to Bond as being a very British thing, and we all go and see it, whatever. You don't really think, well, how do other countries view this? But when Skyfall came out, everybody was going nuts there. People were like going crazy for this, you know, they were all desperate to see it, they were going to see it a second and third time, and all this kind of thing. And there was a very kind of 
at that particular time there was a real massive enthusiasm for everything Bond, but I think it was yeah. because it kind of almost touched on what Marvel has got right now, in the sense that Skyfall kind of created a cinematic universe for one little movie, with references to things and created that that sense of a of a bigger world. If that makes sense. Yeah, I think Skyfall was our last legitimately universally liked film. Uh-huh. Like but it was sense. amazing seeing the Americans that enthusiastic, because I never thought Americans were that into yeah. Bond, but they really were. I mean, people were like, you know, going to see it again and again. Well, see, they- I believe but, um, part of the, around that time, 2012, it was also Bond's 50th anniversary. I can't anniversary. believe it's that long ago, honestly. I know, 50 years since Doctor No, so there was a lot of marketing directed, not only, because Skyfall... Um, coincided with the 50th anniversary of Bond so there was a lot of you know Martin there was a special documentary made and I've still not seen it um, I don't I hope you can get in DVD it was a kind of 50th anniversary DVD and you know interv- I know it certainly interviewed Timothy Dalton who's and then you know most of the other Bond actors and the likes of Dalton you know similar to Connery usually shy he gave very little interviews so I found that really compelling so I'd love to see all that I don't think Connery was in it but um, you know that's looks really really cool i'd really love to see that in its entirety okay um before we we're obviously going to watch you only live twice just to come back to the the older stuff um gordon you want to bring us up to speed on this one what's uh what's this one's set in japan isn't it sure is this is set in japan because what happens is specter are back and this particular one there is round about the nineteen sixties. I think there was a lot of you know space exploration starting to take off with like U.S. and Russia and a U.S. Um, you know space exploration. Um, some you know sort of vessel gets mysteriously disappears up in outer space and just dis- disappears. And I think later in the film, a Russian one also disappears. And it was the height of the Cold War. The the two superpowers, the U.S. and Russia, kind of pointing fingers. The British say we we don't believe it was Russia who who hijacked or did anything with with the American space rocket. It was that we we think there's we picked up some kind of activity from Japan. So the uh, the British government send their the best agent to Japan. I always say that how they, they they send their best agent. It's always the same thing that they send um, James Bond to Japan, and he un, and he uncovers, of course, a Spectre connection. And I'll also say without spoiling it, you only live twice as the, the film, after all the build-up, all the great tension, the first film where actually Ernst Stavro Blofeld is unmasked and we actually get to see his face and all that. So we're, we're in for, for for quite an exciting film, I think. Gordon, I have a question. Is this the one where Bond has a disguise? I think Bond is... It, well, he's in disguise in uh, various films, but, you know... But I mean, like, mean, is he dressed up as a... Japanese person. Yeah, point. that does come into it. Not uh-huh. one of my, yeah. my favourite aspects of the movie. And also, I thought it was we'll this be talking one. about this film yeah. and the, 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 the way it's dated at some point, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. I've I got just figure speak. we should bring this out now, do yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah, there's no, that's not a major spoiler. That's fine. I think it, it is a spoiler cast anyway. But um, one thing about this film, I would say it's there's people out there with a lot of love for this film, and there, there's it's a bit divisive. There's some people saying, you know, it went too far and. Uh, it, it strayed too much from the formula. You know, it was a bit of a divisive film. And also, I would say, 
it was completely different to the You Only Live Twice original book being fly. I mean, just this is the first of the films we've seen so far that really kind of completely strays away from the storyline. I think Goldfinger, for example, was a bit different, but still followed similar lines. But You Only Live Twice was totally different. And do you know the the screenplay, of the story was actually, or part of the story was actually by Roald Dahl, the renowned children's author, which that maybe kind of tells you something. Really? Yeah, that's amazing. Well, have you I've ever read, read any of Dow's serious stuff? It's dark as fuck. I found it blew my mind when see when I heard Roald Dahl did like, really? play for this. Like, I mean, have you honestly? Has any of you ever read any of Roald Dahl's adult no. stuff? No, like, it's I mean, adult it's stuff. Like, no. I mean, adult, obviously, adult, like, yeah. I mean, I yeah, yeah. I mean, like he's he's done obviously he had dark notes in his children's books that were outrageous, but his adult stuff is really you know really something. I mean, I, I had no idea. Wow. Um, and an ex girlfriend of mine had a collection of his adult books, and I was like, wrote down when I started looking at it, and I was like, basically, my childhood was destroyed. When I saw his name next to, sorry, next to the credits, I thought that, that really blew my mind. And it also maybe says something that this was the first one directed by Lewis Gilbert, and he later came back for The Spy Who Loved Me and Moonraker. And so that all three of those films are renowned for, you know, being a bit sort of heightened reality, big. Um, big elaborate sort of doomsday plots, if you like. So I think that's maybe a kind of theme of Lewis Gilbert's as well. So taking the the mantle from Guy Hamilton with Goldfinger, that was exactly that wasn't exactly a grounded. I no guess. Bar. I guess, Yeah, I guess you could say that. Yeah. So um, and we saw, I think, in some ways, Thunderball was a bit more sort of heightened reality extravagant this compared to Goldfinger so um, I'll, I'll be interested to see what you guys make of this obviously seeing either for the first time or first time in a long time I would say this is one of the Bond films I've seen the least mm. not not one of my favourites on the whole it's one of the ones I've seen the least Um, so there is always a lot of new stuff I pick up from it so I'll be really interested to hear you guys taking this can I also just say today is Rolled Dal Day I thought it was oh, that is really what? spooky Gen- I'm trying to work out why it's Rolled Dal Day but today is apparently Rolled Dal Day so we've timed this beautifully like oh, although his script wasn't actually used though wasn't it <laughs> Well, see, I, I sorry, sorry, Roald. It says it says screenplay by Roald Dahl, but I'm sure it says story by someone else. So I don't think it's the the entire things been Roald Dahl, and it does use certain some elements and some characters from the book. It's not it's not completely different from the book. It's uh, but there is some major plotline changes. This is the one where Sean Connery as well. He was starting to get a bit tired with the role. Um, I think he was getting chased a lot and, and sort of Bond mania to after the merchandising of Goldfinger and Thunderball commercial one of the stuff. Adjusted for inflation, Thunderball, I think we spoke about before, is the second most commer- uh, successful of the entire franchise. So at that point, you know, massive mega star was Sean Connery and I think um, I think the pre-production of this, he was kind of dogged by fans and things, and I think he was getting a bit tired with yeah. with the Bond persona. I think he even came out with a quote before filming had started, saying he's he's done with it and um, he wants to make this his last. Obviously, history will show that that wasn't but the case. But um, I think they started thinking about their next Bond around the time of this film. Do you know, it's it's quite interesting when you think about characters who are in, or characters, actors who play characters in franchises and how they feel about their characters. Um, You know, obviously I could talk about Star Trek. You could talk about Leonard Nimoy who plays Spock, who wrote a book called 
I am not Spock, hated it, and then later on wrote one called I am Spock and embraced it. And he, you know, I think it can happen because Connery did come back to do that unofficial film. Yeah. And I think there's a sense of, there's a, there's a process actors go through with franchise characters where they sort of, they don't want that to be the only thing they're remembered for, but then later on, as they age or they get a bit older, they start to realise that it was actually really something that yeah, was exactly. they enjoyed or that was brought them something in their yeah. lives, you know? Yeah. It's a great point, that, because, yeah, you were talking to Steve there about Connery getting tired of the the Bond mania, if you like, the, the paparazzi um, following them everywhere, and it was particularly bad in Japan when they started filming this. It actually, it just so happens that it was halfway through the filming of You Only Live Twice that he made the decision that he wasn't coming back at that time. And that was after, you know, he just couldn't get any peace in Japan. The press and press conferences were, weren't calling him Sean Connery, they were calling him James Bond. And then he... He actually got followed by reporters into the toilet. He was even, I don't know how much truth there is to this, but apparently he was sitting on the toilet and he got a photo taken of him by a member of the paparazzi. And this is the Japanese press. Well, yeah. I mean, because the Japanese I, I press wonder, are usually really polite, aren't they? The Japanese are usually very polite. Uh-huh. They're also quite, I mean, a lot of the time they can be, I think they're shown a lot of the time, they're very affectionate and like sometimes very enthusiastic about things that they like. Mm. It's, it's generalised, of course, but um, maybe he wasn't used to that or prepared for that. I mean, I would, you know, I'd be quite surprised if anyone liked me on the toilet. Do you know what I mean? That, that's quite an extreme, you know, like it just seems like no matter what Sean Connery did, they're going to love the guy, do you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I think it was, a, it, was a, it was a combination no of things. I think I'd read as well, he was going through some troubles with his marriage at the same time and he wanted to kind of branch out and see what other roles he could do. He'd had a, a failure with Marnie, I think that was the film. Um, what was that about? I knew he'd done it, I didn't know. It was like was, a, Alfred Hitchcock, I think. I think he'd yeah. expressed that he wanted to go and work with Hitchcock during one of the Bond films. I have no idea about this. What was that film about? Uh, I don't know. I, I think it was... A, Hitchcock films are usually like and it's, really... it's one of Hitchcock's ones that didn't do as well and uh, but I think he wanted to go and work with him and I think it kind of gave him this I mean it sounds like a good idea in theory doesn't it yeah. Hitchcock's a great person to work mm-hmm. with usually the only uh, other film he was in around the 1960s that I saw he had an absolutely tiny part in The Longest Day which is a World War 2 film yeah and uh, but it's got a big all-star cast and I think that might have been the same year as Doctor No Alright, we are now 18 minutes in. We haven't watched the film. I think it's about time we get the film on. And we'll be back for spoilerific thoughts. And uh, I'll introduce... Spoilerific. I'll introduce a new section as well at the end that I will surprise you with. Uh, (laughs) What's he got in store? Oh, you'll see. Alright then. Bye. properly as well you're going to do the lounging thing again <laughs> and we I are remember this is a home game for me or are we recording we are fuck <laughs> and we are back having watched the fifth James Bond film You Only Live Twice what do we think of this one gents Fran you want to start us <laughs> yes um, I thought I quite liked it to be honest I mean I thought it was a good film I think I think that you know, I, I I guess I had the, my mind focused on the whole idea of Bond being disguised as a Japanese guy and it being cringy, but that was actually quite a small part of the film. I feel like it was actually quite 
It was interesting. It showed a, it showed a whole load of Japan. Actually, I found that part to be the most interesting. I think I agree. Completely agree. Um, that side of things, I liked some of the, just the settings, set design. We'll come to that in more detail. Um, oh yeah, uh-huh. set set design and things yeah. like that, and locations. The scout, you know, location scouts and things like that. They've obviously done really well with varied sets and things like that. Um, that was one of the things I liked about the film, Steve. You're definitely starting, I think now we're on the fifth one, to see the Bond formula in action. This one particularly, uh, all the elements are there. And it, it's it's not starting to feel repetitive, but you're no, you begin to, because we're watching everyone in sequence in quite close proximity, I am starting to notice it, it does follow this very specific pattern. Uh, I mean, it was still it was still enjoyable. Having a different location was nice. The Japan setting was fantastic. It looked stunning. This film. I mean, we thought Thunderball looked good with all the underwater stuff. This that with the the wide shots, the helicopter shots, that submarine at the end, which I'm sure we'll come to. It looked fantastic, and yeah, you know, it was it was action packed. It was fast moving, and it was it was a good fun watch. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Definitely, the formula. I can I can see what you're saying there. Definitely. Gordon, you uh, obviously you mentioned this is what you've obviously seen it a fair few times, but this is one of the ones you have seen the least. Um, what was your takeaway from this recent viewing? Yeah, there, there's a reason for that. I do find it one of the more forgettable movies of the franchise. It was very enjoyable though, and there was a lot to take away from it. And you've all brought up great points. I think, especially Steve, um, there, Steve McCall, the the. Bond going to Japan and the the different culture, just the difference. So in Thunderball, he was under the sea for a lot of the film. Now um, he actually almost went into space. You might have noticed that he was he was almost in the rocket, and Blofeld was like, "Stop that astronaut!" So he almost actually it's not just Moonraker went up to space, and this one he almost did. But um, but anyhow, there is a lot of cartoonish elements of the film. Um, it's a fun watch and. I think um, it was. I just feel this was where obviously I I, I keep a lot of praise in the first four films, and when when I got getting to this one, I feel it does start to stagnate a little bit. But you know, it, it's an enjoyable film, and I I just especially enjoyed the experience of him going to Japan, and you know just how he fed into the 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 culture over there, and he spent a lot of time with Tiger Tanaka. There's a great supporting cast which I really enjoyed. I thought I enjoyed Tiger Tanaka and Aki and the I loved the mystery of I mean you, eventually Blofeld was going to be unmasked and it was great to see just the first four films just that slow build up and I think the the Donald Pleasance Blofeld um, acted by Donald Pleasance in this particular film I really I really enjoyed the reveal of him um, although in many ways like a lot of the more forgettable Bond films I enjoyed the first half a bit more than the second half I would say yeah okay alright then uh, where do we want to start with this one um, we could start as usual I suppose with the beginning I think the start might be a good place to start on this one particularly his obviously the very start the whole premise of this film being you only live twice at the start he's killed in air quotes hmm. and then he's suddenly brought back in i i was i was left trying to work that out was that was that staged his death or were they taking advantage of an ambush and taking advantage of the fact that really explain these things do they i was yeah. i couldn't work out at the start why whether or not he should have been killed 
but wasn't. So they kind of went along with it and thought, right, if we make out that he's dead, we'll be able to get him. We'll be able to get Bond into places. Or whether his death was staged. Because obviously the girl he was with at the time that that particular shooting at the start took place, he's reunited with in Japan. That the circumstances around his death right at the very start, his death it's weird confused me slightly. See, that's part of the reason I enjoyed you know, mm-hmm. the earlier parts of the film a bit more. Because I mean the way I see it is it was staged and when he you, you might have noticed when he meets M on board the the, the warship, M says well, now that you're dead, your your old friends will pay a bit less attention to you. So it's like it's similar to I don't know if you've seen Twenty Four much, where at least once Jack Bauer's death was staged, and obviously um, it was to kind of keep Bond under the radar. That's what I took from it. I, I really enjoyed that. That was one of my more and for me, the one of the more enjoyable aspects of the movie. I liked the whole naval funeral. It was just c- mm. quite apt for Bond, Commander yeah. Bond. He's, he's background in the Royal Navy, you know, in the HMS, whatever it was, I forget it. HMS Tenby it was, because I, I found that out. And he has his naval, naval funeral out at sea. And it's good because it's portrayed up until the, the title sequence of the song that he actually has died. So an odd, a member of the audience seeing this in the cinema for the first time would be thinking, what's happening here? You know, mm. Bond's dead. You probably know he wasn't really killed, but I like even the small detail, like the guy looking <laughs> at the just, newspaper, he says British Naval Commander murdered. I just had this idea of somebody who actually took it at face value that he died and decided, well, I'm not just watching this. Yeah. <laughs> I just walked out. Yeah, I, don't, I mean, I don't think anyone would have done that, but they... You wouldn't be 100% certain, I would say, that not of what's going on. You'd know he hasn't died, obviously, completely, but I like, and I just love the abruptness when he's, it's like a mummy floating his um, supposed body floating to the bottom of the sea, and a couple of divers go out, they um, they drag his body into the submarine, and they open it up, and just they very abruptly just looks up and goes, Permission to come aboard, Commander. Yeah, which then leads us into the great bit with them all with their ranks and uniforms and yeah, get some context like for the that. fact that M's an admirable... Uh, admirable? Admirable. <laughs> I'm sure he is admirable. Yeah. Yeah. Freudian slip. And I love the fact that, that M was actually out there in Japan. He says, oh, this, uh-huh. this is the big one, 007. That's why I'm out here myself. But it's like so big, even M had to come Here's out. the weird thing, though, right? I mean, this is James Bond, I suppose, right? It's always going to be overly complicated. Why did they have to put him inside the mummy's thing and drop him into the sea? Couldn't they have just was... pretended that it was him and then, and then I mean, Got the divers coming out to get him and then bringing him in and, you know, I mean, one of these dedication like to complexity. <laughs> it's like you know cinematic I mean? license, isn't it? You know, it's to, it's to get just... Um, you bring know, a new slant yeah. to it, you know, get, get um make just at least make the audience and not to necessarily make them question as he did or as he not maybe more just for them to sit up and take notice and not be falling asleep. You I know? feel like the answer when you ask these kind of questions is always gonna be because it looks fucking cool. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you could, you know, why this? Why is that? Why? But it makes it really funny. Like, right. see if you start to work backwards and draw a list of the plan they had to go through. Like, think about it. The British government, like, someone had to sit down with a spreadsheet and fucking work this out. Right, we're going to need this supply. We're going to need this gas thing to put on his body. We're going to need to make sure he's in the water for this amount of time. Do you know what I mean? Like, oh, plastic <laughs> cast mould uh-huh. of his body. Yeah, exactly. Does this fit in with health and safety regulations? Do you know what I mean? In work and, or whatever. And you said as well, Fran, you enjoyed getting, and I did as well getting to see Bond in his, his naval commander uh-huh. outfit and seeing M in the Admiral outfit and Moneypenny um, she was actually wearing the uniform of one of the Wrens which I think they were like some kind of um, naval 
female naval division or something like that because one of my grandmothers was originally a, a Ren and like apparently a Roman almost like a... I'm not sure but um, I thought that they were more sort of like nursing division than Navy I'll need to read up but apparently, uh, that, apparently that was the sort of uniform that Moneypenny was wearing there, there was great dialogue between Bond and Moneypenny and Bond and M and I love the fact that it, sh- it showed um, Bond's roots in a bit of kind of Fleming-esque detail like from the books for example like Bond um, M gives him the bit of paper, says your contacts Henderson, and immediately reads it and burns it. You know, because Bond's got this photographic memory, and he goes next door and he's he, he chats with Money Penny, and she throws in the book, um, instant Japanese, and he's like, "You forget, I I, I studied Japanese at Oxford or something yeah. like that." Yeah. That particular scene, what I did notice is that the layouts from the hat stands to where Money Penny's desk was. To the door through to where M's office, to where M's desk was, is identical to how it is in the London office. It's I don't know if that's just for the continuity or if that's part just of the formula, must, but it could be because M is like just almost autistic levels of needs things to be the OCD, same. Do you know what I mean? uh-huh. Even even on my submarine, this office uh-huh. has to look because the positioning of everything. I mean, that's that's why he can walk straight the door and throw his hat, obviously, because yeah. the hat stands always in the same he, place. He, just, he, he obviously just opened the room. Like, he didn't even he assume that the room would be different. No, exactly. Yeah. It's I just I spotted that and thought, this looks very familiar. Uh-huh. I think it, it, it helped that they all were dressed in the sort of naval outfits because as much as that scene was... We talked earlier about the formulaic nature of this film that you start to notice. At least they change things up within the formula to yes, change yeah. it up a bit, which is what I appreciate yeah. because I did feel that it did feel here's the cue scene, here's here's the scene we'll get to as well with you know all the the henchmen in the background and all these crazy uh, guns going off and explosions and stuff like that. But it, that different setting it helped sort of feel. Like, it still was doing something different. Yeah. I think that is the key there. I do admire how Bond's roots come out. And, you know, for example, the fact he studied Japanese at Oxford. And you were touching the Q scene as well, Stephen. And the with Q in this film, it's a more brief scene. But, you know, there's still, again, good chemistry between Sean Connery and Desmond well. And not, I mean, I said before, Thunderball and Goldfinger are outstanding Q scenes. This was a, a bit more low-key, but I love how when Bond walked into the room, you can tell Q's been waiting for ages. He kind of tosses this rag to the side and brushes the sweat from his forehead, and you can tell he's really exasperated at Bond's lack of respect and just taking his time. There was. It was good character moments. I do wonder if there was more and it's been cut. I'd read that this film actually had a four and a half hour uh, initial runtime. I and, bet you any money yeah. that most of the stuff that was yeah there was lots of the non scenes. non plot essential yeah. stuff they can yeah. cut. So yeah. all the character stuff was probably cut. Yeah. Um, because I think I think it was Lewis Gilbert as the director. Yeah. So he I read he had um, his own editor, different from how it's been before Peter Hunt, who's been editing the previous films. Uh, he had his own editor do it, and I can't uh, forgive for me for her name. I've forgotten, but she brought in this final runtime of like four and a half hours or nearly five hour kind of runtime, and obviously it was panned by the test audiences and things like that. So they got in. What Peter, they made them watch a five hour film? Yeah, wow. yeah. And then they, so Peter Hunt came back. Peter Hunt was then drafted in, and they fixed it up to the two hour runtime it is now. And obviously, you know, you've cut three hours from that. What yeah. on earth was in that? But there must have been. It did feel like the money penny scene and um, there was a lot. Maybe that's why there condensed. was that weird cut with the Soviets. Because yes, you, Gordon, you pointed that out. Yeah, I thought it was a fault with my dodgy DVD. 
Yeah, there was like exterior. Normally, a film. My, would non, show you. my non Blu-ray DVD, by <laughs> yeah, the way. I know, not the one you bought down the pub. Yeah, <laughs> we're slumming it up here, you know. <laughs> uh, no, Hello. like there was whole shots. Normally, you'd experience like an exterior uh, establishment shot before it shows you the inside of wherever we are. But it was that was a jump cut to. Uh, one of the, it was the Russian did, yeah. submarine or something. It did seem very odd. I mean, I honestly thought it was part of my DVD going wrong because it has done in other DVDs. Remember, I paused and rewind, but that actually was what happened. But Peter Hunt was the editor for everyone from going back to Doctor No, and it had obviously become a really great tight editor who was an integral part of the, the Bond crew. And of course, he, he actually becomes the director for the next film we'll watch on Her Majesty's Secret Service. He graduated from mm-hmm. editor to director. I think he was the assist. He was like the director of the second unit on this one or something. And then he realised what yeah, came in. Yeah, next correct. One. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so obviously... Uh, what 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 um? Let, we've talked about Blofeld a little. Let's let's talk about Donald Pleasance then and that reveal. Um, how do you how do you feel about that? That was quite a moment. That was the. I think that's where the film peaked. That's what you. That's what any Bond film, having got to film five, will have been waiting for. And that final reveal where you do see his face, and he's got Ed's Bond, so he's got to have some kind of facial disfigurement, obviously, mm-hmm. to have him standing out as a villain, because that's what they do. And it was, it was, it was quite exciting. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think it was, you know, five films in, we finally see this character that's been sort of in, running things in the background. It was actually quite ahead of its time that that happened because you you didn't usually have that in older films, no, did you? Not, no. It's more a thing that you'd have now, where you'd have uh, you build up uh, your films. Can you you plan no, ahead? Uh, what actor? Usually no, to the are. detriment, of course. But um, and it was yeah. it's funny because you know Blofeld didn't stay. It wasn't the same actor from more than one film. Donald Pleasance wasn't in the next one. Um, we'll see who does that. You know when we get on to the next film, but um, he's generally the most memorable blow filled out of all the actors that played him, and you know probably for me the most memorable. I love. I really genuinely love the 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 reveal as um, sort of cartoonish to me. The film was becoming at that point. I just his face looked you know just very menacing. Um, the disfigurement makes him stand out. <laughs> Even the light is like. I know he's like completely bald, but he looks his face and head looks so shiny, just you know. But that and then of course, um, I like Bond's line. Yes, this is my second life. And Blo- Blofeld, even the small touches, he kind of pushes one of the Spectre guards out of the way. And he goes, "You only live twice, Mister Bond." And I did feel that line could have been somehow more memorable. Like you, you feel like that's them going for the Goldfinger mm. sort of exchange, and it didn't feel quite. I, it was almost obvious. I could see where it was going. You're going to say that you only live twice, but I, I didn't ring the same with me. Actually, I felt oh, it was yeah. a bit something a bit flat about it. I, I liked know. it. Did I, you guys notice? Yeah, I, I, it's weird. Like I, it felt like it exchange should have been the it. iconic moment. Here's the moment in the trailer, or we didn't show that. I suppose the thing is, though, I wonder whether I would have been happy anyway. Do you know what I mean? Because I think if it had been, I would have thought, oh, you know, it's it's a bit cliched. It's a bit. It's, big moment or whatever and then the other way is very understated yeah, I, I don't true. think there maybe is any way to get something like that right and they probably just went with whatever you know what I mean they just thought well whatever you I know? feel Donald Pleasance's Blofeld had the, the menace factor is maybe kind of cartoonish is it to me anyway it, it came out a little bit but I thought out of all the, the, the other you will see there's one or two other actors that play Blofeld I, 
I thought he was the best, and you know, he's just the template for so Didn't many think things. His voice was a bit weak, though. I did think like, that. It's almost me, like I David could, Beckham yeah. trying to be a bit. I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You'll notice I'm the film's biggest critic. I've criticised already, but yeah. I don't really have a, a problem with that. I think it ends a bit abruptly after the whole volcano scene. I was forgetting, you know, just how quickly. I feel like there should have been some sort of payoff at the end, some sort of twist near the end, but it just. It, Ended a bit I, abruptly I for know. me. Like, I honestly, God, see that ending, right? I was sitting staring at the screen, speechless, looking at this thing. Well, I did talk, obviously, but you know what I mean. <laughs> I mean, I'm looking at this thing. I'm thinking, how the f- how the fuck did they build that set? Look at all these actors running about we'll, here. We'll get all to the these set things in a minute, are that's that's one know, of the main things I think this film's yeah. strong point. Like for that reason, I don't know if it needed a twist. All it needed was that sustained absolute chaos. The twist, the, the twist effectively was that he blew his own place up. Well, yeah. And I suppose that leaves you thinking, did he survive? Did he not? What's happened yeah, to him? So I suppose that, that leaves you hanging see. for the next film. Yeah, they did yeah. show him after that, didn't they? So. And I find it intriguing that the fact Blofeld, we all know Blofeld comes back in future films and the... Are you the, 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 no, I was just going to say, <laughs> all right. The, Gordon, the, how could the, you... The cat's back as well. It's like this huge explosion. You actually see when he when he shoots Mr. Asato, the cat kind of runs away and hides. Yeah, and he's running out. Blofeld's running away in the escape thing without the cat. And the whole place blows up. All these people dying, but somehow the cat seems to survive. So cats indeed, I think, do have nine lives. And cats, just yeah, two lives. you only live nine times. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's not got the, quite the same ring to it. Yeah, yeah. All right, let's talk about the sets then, because that is clearly an area we all feel were the strongest point of this film. Ken Adams is a set. I, I think mean, he was what the set director. Legendary. I mean, honest to God. I mean, even today, I would be. I mean, obviously today we've got CGI that takes over, and it takes away a little bit of the magic. I think when you think about the fact that somebody actually put that thing together in nineteen sixty-seven. I mean, yeah. Incredible, really, and you know. I had theorised that it may be the same hangar or whatever at Pinewood that they used for the the rebel base scenes in the first Star Wars film because that was a big cavernous room as well. I feel like Pinewood was Pinewood was just made for that, wasn't it? Like, just, yeah. I mean, think about how big that must be mm-hmm. to have a set that's. I mean, that's all real. We're looking at real stuff. No doubt there must be some matte painting going on somewhere. It has to be. It was certainly if it was, it was With the obvious. sky, at least. I yeah. think, yeah, the sky, you did notice a, but, a bit of an abrupt I mean, change. But the set was stunning, and apparently, like, a large chunk of the 9 to $10 million budget actually just went in that set with Ken Adam, which I think that was just Pinewood Studios, wasn't it? Yeah. Honestly, yeah. I, I actually, I can't, like, see that again. I, I can hardly wrap my head around the fact that it, that they did that. I just can't, I don't know how. Yeah. Steve, you're usually one to comment on the uh, the villain's lair. That's usually yeah, I, I enjoyed this one. This one, I mean, they're they're slowly getting less comical. Um, but as I mean, as a pointer, the second I saw it, I immediately thought that's from The Simpsons, and it is. It's I went and looked it up afterwards. The what is widely regarded as the best Simpsons episode in existence, You Only Live Twice, which is the one with um, Hank Scorpio who employs Homer and he turns out to be an evil sort of Bond villain. But the the base there was identical to the one in the cartoon, oh, which fantastic. I thought was a I thought was a nice little touch. Yeah. But I, I wholeheartedly agree that the scale of it and what I do just keep coming back to this was nineteen sixty seven. This was fifty two years ago. He's something like that. This sounds about right. Yeah, yeah. Well, what I think. Um, 57, I think. Our maths is terrible. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) 
52. I was we, ready we, for us to make journalism. Yeah, I just, I, I genuinely can't believe that the. I mean, I'd be amazed to see that today, how they did that and the amount of work that must have gone into that without the computer technology and stuff that we have today is just mind-blowing. It's, it's genuinely incredible. And like so many Bond films, you know, a little, a little monorail. Yeah. And I love them. Remember Tanaka, Tiger Tanaka, who's the, the head of the Japanese Secret Services, his own little underground um, railway network. And he, and he says to Bond, I, I imagine you're... you're your boss has a similar contraption in London. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And Bond's like, yeah. Didn't you call him or think of him as like the ultimate? I think we all kind of thought of Tanaka as like the ultimate micromanager who was just going around and kind of getting involved in all the departments. Like Steve, you say something like he's probably looking at the catering staff. Uh, yeah. Man, he's so he's so hands on though, isn't he? He's you know he's in the middle of the 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 big um, fight at the end in the volcano where you know he's firing machine guns. I think he saves Bond's life. Chuck in the little ninja um whatever you call it um and he's, yeah. he's, he's so hands-on and he's the head of the secret service he's you know a real kind of high level figure and you know and it goes even a step further in the novel bond goes out drinking with them for a long time you know it's like a big pub crawl essentially but bond and the head of the japanese secret service who's who's so well protected that he has to be his own kind of underground railway network you know and that, the other thing interesting is in the novel you know Henderson now I thought he was a great character I thought he was fantastic but you you only get a, a brief glimmer of him um, played with Charles Gray um, who went on to start in another Bond film which I won't spoil too much he was Bond he, so he was the contact that Bond had in Japan at the start of the film so Bond has to meet him in his house I think it is and he ends up being killed after a couple... He was only had about a couple of minutes screen time, but in the novel, Bond and him eventually... Bond and him go out drinking to all hours. Just, they're just having drink after drink, like a big pub crawl, and the, there's weird kind of dialogue, and he actually calls Bond in the book, because my brother brought this up, I couldn't believe it. it was, I think it, Henderson's meant to be Australian, and he, he gets a bit drunk and he calls Bond. It's like the P word, you know, it's a slang term for, for a homosexual man. He calls Bond that... And wow. it's, it's like we were kind of blown away by it but so he is a huge kind of in the book like Tanaka he is a, a large amount not screen time but he's a large amount you know book time or whatever but he's only in the film for two minutes it would have been more intriguing to learn a bit more about you know his backstory you, you never know maybe those bits were cut they must I imagine of all the stuff that was cut it was probably a lot of the Henderson stuff if that was the case yeah in terms of the sets as well as obviously the, the main villainous lair um, I think Tanaka's underground sort of home particularly with the the slide that Bond shoot, falls yeah. down the chute yeah, yeah. and he, he, he who yeah, Bond falls through and lands perfectly on a kind of chaise long and bear in mind in a, sort of he, he laid out position this, this is all presuming the fact that Bond decides to follow the woman right yep. so what if Bond didn't they're all like damn it we can't get him like <laughs> well that was wasted we have to build another slide in the other <laughs> area <laughs> what do you do the slide out I for know, nothing but... I don't, there's a good illusion though that the fact that, sh- that Aki may have been uh, a villain villainess and that Tanaka originally until Bond like kind of um, they agreed in the password and all that. He realised he was an you. ally. Yeah, that password was them. brilliant. And you were chuckling when Henderson poured Bond the drink. Says that stirred, not shaken. I was correct, and just out of, out of simple politeness, Bond just says yes. Right. 
Yeah, some of the humour actually in this film was subtle. There was not a lot of it, but there was moments that did hit that yes. line in particular. I, actually, made me laugh. I, I, I feel like they were trying to get the audience to feel a little bit sorry for Henderson because I think he was a nice, seemed like a fairly reasonable kind of guy, and it, it was horrible that he just got basically killed. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Like the, I think it was supposed to show that Bond, you know, Bond was sympathetic towards the guy even though he made a, a silly mistake or whatever, and then, you know, like I think that... that sense of sympathy from the audience it's hard to tell with the films because they move on so quickly I just feel like they don't give you any chance to really feel I think that's what they were trying to to do I think they were trying to like there's a psychological thing like say you tend to give someone a break if you like them Mm. so I think that's a little trick that they were doing there to try and get the audience to feel sympathetic towards him and then he died but then and then Haki as well she's poisoned and it's Uh it's over quite quickly and it's kind of Bond moves on and it's you know, this is a girl, yeah. you know, quite cruelly killed and she's a lovely character and things like that. And it's just, you know, it's, it's this thing that I've noticed in the Bond films that it, plot moves on quickly and it's just one of these things, isn't it? Well, maybe it's easier for Bond to move on than it is for any anyone else on Earth, well, basically. true, yeah. yeah. That's, the character is not known, he's not been established as a sympathetic, sentimental type. That's the exact yeah. opposite of what he is. So, yes, that's the way it is, isn't it? But, I yeah. suppose that's the peculiar skill that Bond has is that he can move on from people like that. You need that emotional state. Yeah, I thought that was well portrayed. Yeah. And I think um, Aki's death was was well done and the music was really effective there and the, you know, the the quiet, tense music with the poison dripping down the the thread intended Uh for Bond, which that would have maybe made people sit up and take notes in the cinema (laughs) and it... Yeah, it's quite it's quite a hard hitting death sequence. She I'm obviously said, lost. You know, you take the words right out of my head there with the hard hitting, like because I think you could tell she was scared, and she's trying to explain what's happening to her, oh, and then yeah. she saw it suddenly just dead. Yeah. and I think that you know death is like that. Death, <clears throat> death is something that you don't, even as it's happening, you're not fully comprehending what's going on, and it's it's quite a scary experience. I think they really got that across really quite quite well. I think, uh, again, I'll return to um, Bond's supposed death at the start. I quite liked the, the illusion that, that he was killed. And like I said, it reminded me a bit of Jack Bauer at 24, another you know hero with the initials JB. But I thought, um, it, uh, to me, it does kind of make sense in a way. I know it, you might say it's a bit silly, but to keep it, his enemies off his back, you know, the idea that he's dead. And I liked how, you know, Blofeld, um, well, I don't know if Blofeld really believed he was dead, but Mr. Osato, one of the other vil- sp- villains, and I remember Spectre and, and uh, Miss Brandt, who's like, I think she was Spectre number 11. They were saying, like, I thought Bond was dead. Here's, I've got a question for you guys, by the way, because I got really confused by one bit. Now, Bond died. Died. Technically, and then was like put through this whole thing about not being like but being brought back so he could hide from his enemies, right? And it was in the paper, wasn't it? Yeah. But he met what was that guy's name? The grey-haired guy. The the owner of the big chemical uh-huh. country who were kind of in association with both of Mister uh-huh. Sat. Yes. Uh-huh. So he meets them. They're obviously like, and he's pretending to be Fisher, but their jobs to kill kill him as Bond. Yeah. And he orders that woman to do it, but she doesn't do it, whatever. Blah, blah, blah. But then at the very end, when they're talking about it, the, um, Blofeld says, but um, did you kill Bond or something? And the woman says something like, no, but he was already dead. It was in the paper. And I was thinking, that doesn't make any sense to me because how... You already knew that. 
Do you know what I mean? Like, why why did she say that to Blofeld? If she'd seen it in the paper, she'd have recognised Bond uh-huh. as Fisher when she... Or did she recognise... Because uh, the way that she was looking at him throughout that scene suggested uh-huh. that she recognised him. So I get the impression yeah. that... Because obviously... His picture was on the front of the paper, for God's sake. Yeah, she was Spectre, <laughs> though, I guess. So was... she would have known who he was pretty much from the start. Yeah, that's what I thought. That was one of the bits that, you know, made me think a wee bit. But also, what was really inexplicable and silly was, um, so um, she kind of has Bond tied up and he supposedly like, persuades her to, like, bribes her to let, let him out. And, and she ends, it seems like she's agreed to it and that she pilots a little plane. He goes up in with her. They are, they're supposedly meant to escape and she's, you know, turned to the, the good side. And then she just says, I'm sorry, I'm leaving, leaves him kind of tied up in the plane. <laughs> Yeah. Let's off a little flare or something, abandons the plane <laughs> to let him die in a plane. It's like, if she was going to kill him, why not just kill yeah. him there and then when she had him held cap? Yeah. Why go to yeah. all that trouble and expense? <laughs> Take him all, you yeah. know, hundreds of thousands of feet up in the air just to jump by the plane, risk your own life, you know, uh, she went to the jumping down. Of murder. I think <laughs> she did, I, I. Honestly, I think part of this, right, let's, let's try and frame this in the idea of this being a believable universe. These people don't really want to kill Bond. Yeah, I know. That's the impression you get. Yeah. You, you, you just want to toy touched, with them. And you, you and guys were saying... Blofeld had a gun and pointed yeah. straight at Bond's head towards the end and decided, yeah. no, I'll kill my henchman, who's probably annoyed uh-huh. me a little. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, such so egotism. You know, I'm going to make a point to Bond. Ha <laughs> ha. You know, like, and then he, the, the, Bond always makes it, but Bond makes it... Here's the question. Is Bond competent or is everybody else incompetent? <laughs> yeah. That is the question. Yeah. That, it's yeah, a lot good, more fun to imagine everyone is just super <laughs> yeah. incompetent. Yeah, he's just a normal guy. Like, I'm sure just it was Tanaka that threw the little blade to stop Blofeld and save his life. And he doesn't even thank him. He's just, you know, it's not as if he's just bought him a pint. He's saved his life and he doesn't even say anything. But yeah. Um... Poor Tanaka. I mean, I'd be upset if I was Tanaka. Mm-hmm. If I'd saved, like, say, Steve, you were getting on a, a thing or whatever and someone was going to shoot you and I saved you. And you just walked over and were like, eh, right, let's go. Yeah. <laughs> so right. I'd be offended let's, by that. Uh, let's talk about the music of Bond. And this, then this film, normally we cover this earlier on the podcast, the the title sequence, the, is it Nancy Sinatra? It is, yeah. yes. What do you guys make of that? Great, great song. I, I love the way it was, uh, you know, how it, more so how it came out in the score, like particularly the scene at the Kobe docks when Bond and Aki were doing a recce in this uh, this tanker, the Ningpo, and uh, the fight sequence, you know, especially, I love the, when the trumpets and I really come out playing mm-hmm. the theme tune, that moment especially was really good. I thought they would go a bit kind of Again, a bit cartoonish. Like Bond just seemed like this invincible figure when the when the the camera zoomed out and, and there's all these guys running at him. The <laughs> thing was, like Bond yeah. had his. It his wasn't PP. my favorite that point. It was like the YMCA running at him. Like, oh, <laughs> like, like, yeah, I know. It was like you know when Super Mario goes into invincibility mode. It was almost like that. Remember, because the camera zooms out and there's like there's got to be like a dozen henchmen at either side enclosing him, and he's just kind of swatting them away like flies. And uh, do you know as well, he had he had his gun obviously because you saw him he shot I counted about five bullets and that he must have had others he couldn't have just gone to those docks with five bullets but he's not after that he isn't even shooting these 
these feel, dudes on the rooftop. He's, he's just kind of punching them and kicking <laughs> them, and then he runs away. But they, they don't even block off the exits. He just kind of bombs down the next exit. I feel exit. like we're coming back you to know, that, that point. That was the best of, review um, of Nancy Sinatra I've ever heard. <laughs> sorry, I know, yeah, I know we were on the music, but to, 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 to sort of rain it. To I rain, did think on that. Come, come on, boy. Rain yourself we, back in now. Rain yourself back in. Um, before we move on, that, I was going to say, I think like, um, the, that fight scene was just an example of that point you made earlier, Fran, about everyone else being incompetent. Yeah. yeah. In yeah. other words, the music in this film Almost skillfully incompetent. Yeah. Right? Like, you have to be good to be that bad. But Nancy Sinatra, I just have to say this before I forget, don't want to be horrible about her or anything like that. I don't know. In any other music she does of any kind, but I didn't really care about the singing. I didn't care about any of the song apart from that one bit that basically was lifted for um, Millennium by Robbie Williams. And I think that that little bit of, of uh, strings there is one of the simplest, but yet one of the best pieces of music But that's ever. John Barry, isn't it? Is that John Barry who did that? I'm so, I sure. but didn't question. he usually do, didn't he usually work with the musicians or do something yeah. with them for the songs? But, yeah. I mean, that is genius. It's a great song. It's a yeah, stunning we, you know, little I, bit of music. I completely agree about the song. I didn't like the song, didn't like Nancy Sinatra. Yeah, it was like, go away, Nancy, let's get back to this. Yeah, but that fun. tiny yeah. little, that... Mm-hmm. Two sort of four bars of music. It's, in fact, two bars yeah. of music. Absolutely stunning. And it was good the way it was worked into the score. And that you know, again, it brought in. We, we heard the John Barry's Double Seven theme. We heard the main James Bond theme, even though if it seemed a bit kind of copy and pasted in to some extent, the helicopter sequence. I quite liked but, it when it came in. You know, I, I, I did. I, I, I liked it. Yeah, goosebumps has been that. Yeah. I did. Yeah, yeah the little. Yeah. Dun, 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 it just starts to right, rumble in. I like that. Are you talking about the Bond theme? Yeah, actually, the, the, the proper the, Bond theme, the not the Double Seven theme, which is the other oh, one yeah. you pointed out when. Yeah, but. But um, well, that seems to that fascinates me. That does because that seems to come back through all the movies in different forms. But I'm convinced that they reworked that into the actual soundtrack for Octopussy. They probably do. We'll it's, get it's, to like that. A, it's like yeah. a very percussion based. Yeah. yeah, and also um, I've heard that there's some of the more recent Bond films maybe with Daniel Craig, where unlike all the earlier films, the the score throughout the film doesn't necessarily really include the title song, like you know the you know sort of melody of, for example in Live and Let it Die it play, often plays the Live and Let it Die melody and this it plays You Only Live Twice melody. Apparently there's a there's a royalties issue where if the generally the guy who writes the score for the film is is uh, is not been involved in the title song. So if they then involve the the main title song in their music, then they don't get the, as much royalties. You know, the person oh, who So that's who the wrote, reason. That's part of the reason. I thought it was yeah. just a stylist. It's really it's silly. Yeah. Is, it's crap because, it, it, you know, that's the whole point of a theme, a motif in a film, isn't it? It's like a, it's a repeating, um, there's a, there's, it beds in, doesn't it? It's, it's meant to evoke a feeling. Mm-hmm. It's maybe part of the reason that, because I, I said one of the things I'm not so keen on with the more recent films with Daniel Craig is that they don't use the Bond theme enough. Maybe uh-huh. that, I don't know if that's partly to do with royalties Star as well. Trek as well. Like, I think that's just with Star Trek: The Next Generation. They stopped using the Star Trek theme like for some reason. It was almost as if they wanted to differentiate themselves. Oh, I, and I think that's the same reason yeah. for the Bond theme and the yeah. modern ones. That they're, they're especially with Casino Royale when they were trying to kind of uh-huh. reach a new audience and show, look, we know how campy it got. Here's something completely different left uh-huh. field much more grounded um, and then they've slowly introduced those kind of aspects by Skyfall really um, and yeah we'll see where it goes from there but that's that is, I think that's more a stylistic thing than anything yeah um, John yeah. Barry has a writing credit on Millennium by Robbie Williams so that little bit of music must have been must written be by him. John Barry he must have made a yeah. fucking fortune out of that when that song it's released as well Motif, I mean, it's, it's, it really is. Mm. I could talk beautiful. about that all night. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, it's I think it, it just goes up and down the scale. 
That's all it does. How did how did nobody write that before? How is that possible? That shows his skills. Simple. Yeah. I mean it's literally like playing along the piano. That's catchy. But uh like I just want to air my grievance now that I've been catching up on the bonus content of the other films we've been watching. Uh, the music for Thunderball, uh, Mr. Kiss Kiss Bang oh, Bang. Can we hear that just better. now? Can I, can I hear I that just now? We'll play it after. We'll oh, I want to hear it. I'm really yeah, keen to so it. I was watching the commentary, one of the commentaries, and it has that inserted instead of the actual Tom Jones I don't theme. I think I've ever it's heard that. Much more, it's more like the Goldfinger theme, that sort of like oomph right from yeah. the start. It kind of has this cooler kind of. I'd always it's John Barry wrote that, yeah. I'd yeah, always go so with John, John Barry. Barry. I think John yeah. Barry's a fucking genius, and basically. Like, the mel- the melody Kiss Kiss Bang Bang's actually throughout the film as well. So it's about another that's one of the, the things you look back on hindsight could have been better. Yeah. Uh yeah, so obviously we've touched on sort of that I was gonna to touch on that, but we've kind of already discussed that fight scene and, and and it's to me some of the just a little touching on the editing of that, I didn't wasn't completely confident in when it pulled away and things like that, I thought it looked a bit. There were a lot of awkward yeah. cuts. Again, yes. it's it's a. I'm guessing it is just style of the time. But it makes sense because of what Gordon was saying about the five were cut. There was cuts, yeah, but there's no. Obviously, they didn't. They wouldn't have had the technology or whatever to do transitions uh-huh. and stuff like that, which you may do these days. Yeah. I suppose it's it's just it's what technology. I suppose they had. They were literally cutting video with knives and. It's incredible. Chemicals and, and stuff think, like that. Yeah, so. like as well as I think it's when they try and reach fight far, there's obviously mm-hmm. a line that they can pull off and then it starts to come across a bit, especially when you're watching it now, um it really dated. We've yeah. talked about when we were watching it, obviously every sixties film had it, the sort of backward projection and cars and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And sometimes it looks fine and then there's somewhere it's just a bit like jarring. Yeah. yeah. I think I mean I just all I can do in those scenes is picture uh, try and take myself back to what it, I imagine it would be like in nineteen sixty seven. I reckon the audiences back then would have been so blown away by you know, the the car scenes. They'll have just seen these sort of foreign shots of Japan that they'd have never seen before. The fight mm-hmm. scenes, the amount of people in the sets and the explosions. I think they'd be so blown away by everything. That, and they wouldn't yeah. be watching it over and over again on video either. Yes, that's true. So the cuts wouldn't register as much. Do you know yeah. what? That's the thing, right? I think there's like a, there's a there's a we've lost a lot through technology and CGI and things like that. But we've gained a lot as well. I think that big practical sets, certain um, sort of hands-on approaches to things have maybe been lost. Whereas when you're talking about cuts, guys, I think that's a that's where we've benefited in oh, cinema big time. Like, yeah. I mean, I would be very happy if we used our technology that we have now to address those issues, but still retained some of that. So essentially, Christopher Nolan ethos. Which yeah, is practical as you know. big budget films, but uses. Still film, not digital, and also but to practical hit, yeah. effects. If he's going to have a, a dogfight in the uh-huh. air, it's all practically done. Yeah. I mean, there's no reason not to have, like, multiple shots of things or um, shots that are pulled together from two different shots. Like, look, even George Lucas did that, which he kind of pioneered, which digitally pulling two takes together to make a, a better take. Mm-hmm. These are all good things, but I think that... You know, in fact, we'll say seg- on that. Actually, you didn't see Thunderball, but no. um, that was a technique in Thunderball. 
See that those well, seemed Peter Peter did it. There were, um, he would have it was like wipes they call it. I mean, I'm sure that's what it was. Like there was a couple of scenes where it would yeah, wipe. Yeah, there was ah. like similar to. And I, when I watched it, because I just associate that's a Star Wars uh-huh. thing. And I've never seen other films really do that. They sort of wipe. And yeah, it, it, they're more prominent. I think maybe but it was subtle. I think it was from old um, pulpy sci-fi type things, and that's yeah. where Lucas took it from. But. Certainly, it's not like Lucas created it. Oh, no, certainly I mean? not. And, and, you know, Thunderball was what... But it's not very commonly used, I don't think. It's yeah, not, it's not like a, a yeah. really well-known thing. But a Submarine? Can we talk about oh, Submarine? Yeah, oh, yeah, yes. You really loved that. Yeah. I, I loved it because, like, how many seconds was it on screen for? Let's think about this for a second, right? They organised a submarine to come and come out of the water so at the precise the moment. The, the yeah, scene of the film. Aha. Right, a scene that is not even necessary for the plot or anything, right? The submarine comes out of the water, lifts the lifeboat with Bond, and what's her name? Is is fake K- wife? Kissy. It's funny because Kissy Suzuki, but yeah, I'm, I'm not surprised you asked me because her name's not mentioned yeah, at all never... in the, the film, but her, her, they've just given her that name because she was essentially the same character who was named Kissy and the book who Bond like kind of settles well, down with in the lovely end, but... lovely girl like I mean I, I had a bit of a soft spot for her I think she looked very nice you know but um, I, I, that submarine rises out of the water and I was just looking at this and thinking and then it was over and I was just thinking my god like this is what I miss about cinema I miss the fact that somebody had to bloody organise this whole thing for just this t- one little and see just to make it's it the, I, think, I think it's when you know it was Incredible. practical there's just no question of it and that's what's impressive about it, it wasn't even because now there's it. always a feeling well that was probably the, so you're just never as impressed because there's always yeah. a, a chance that it was done you know you'd have to actually look online and watch a documentary I mean, that, that to know that film it was done actually beats any CGI we could ever do because it's real mm. and I think the idea is just the element of surprise <laughs> how many Bond films do we see Bond and the 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 girl he gets together with, they think they're alone, but then they're not alone. You know, as you've seen, we've seen in so many films, like you know, Goldfinger. Further on, like Tomorrow Never Dies and stuff again. Out, I just I see yeah. it's go- I felt this Golden Eye. I could see Golden Eye in many uh-huh. of this stuff. That yeah. was him and Natalia, and then the Jungle Marine guys mm-hmm. sort of appear near them and things like that. Another um, um point that's very well worth bringing up is you know Bond is essentially. Um, Turn, meant, meant to turn Japanese, if you like, given this sort of element of plastic yeah. surgery. Should we go down the dated route? Yeah, so where I, was gonna, I, was, I was leaning, I was going <laughs> to get my segue right, but you've pretty much done it for me. Yeah. Yes, let's talk about where this film obviously has dated, and that, that's one of the obvious points. We'll tackle that part first before Actually, we get into the treatment of called Turning Japanese. Who's that by again? Oh, yeah, yeah. The, the, turning Japanese. Turning Japanese. But who's that by? I'm sure it's, I, forget I wonder if that was about that. It's going to come to, no, that was about something completely different. Well, it fits, Let's doesn't it? <laughs> it, it fits, <laughs> certainly, but that's, that's, that's not what that's no, about. I've, I've never known, but... I'll it, explain later. It came into my head when I was, I was just thinking... I just for some reason was going around and around my head that whole section I felt a bit uneasy uh-huh. yeah I knew yeah. it was coming but I still felt uneasy with certainly the sort of stuff about the talking about women and she looks like a pig and all this kind of stuff I know that it was, a, it was actually a set up and it was but it, it felt like then there was women coming up and I wasn't clear on what we're meant to think here I think that it looks like a pig I don't I think you might be reading a bit too much into that I think he was just meant to 
be teasing Bond to say like, oh, you haven't seen her for all, you know, she could be ugly. It was, it was more like we're as an audience watching our hero character. You know, he's technically an anti-hero in some ways. You wouldn't yeah. always... Fleming has said he's not a hero. He's not meant to be a hero. But anyways, we're watching the character we are sort of associating with and he's kind of looking at women as... It just, I mean, he's judging them and he's looking at them, and and that because of the comment he made. Yeah, he's just a one-off comment. It happened a couple of times. He's disappointed that he wasn't going to get. He was going to. He was going to be given an ugly girl, and he was disappointed by that. And that does feel very awkward. (sighs) You know, I agree. Like, I I agree, and I also I disagree and agree kind of weirdly on this throughout the film and throughout this whole thing because I think. It's not really the. It's not really Bond as an individual disagreeing with. It's the world he was living in at the time, where it was okay. Do you know what I mean? And people had these places and these positions, and it was okay to say these things. And I think that anti-heroes like that do exist today. There are people who are rude to women and rude to men or to whoever. But I think that it's the fact that society itself was okay with this shit, basically. It's less that it was okay, it's more that the people who were victim or the ones Uh being punched down didn't have the confidence or the ability to respond to what they were being put through. I mean, at least now they can. That's the thing, at least in today's world, people can have a proper discussion about these things, and I think in movies these days you will get your sexist, misogynist, racist, xenophobic, and God knows we meet them in real life too. You will see these people in the world it's just the world that's changed, not them. And to be fair on this film, where I mean, the, the Japanese stuff is when he's, you know, meant to be Japanese and stuff. It's, oh, it's just so bad. And it's... It looks like a Beano character yeah, or something. From a, plot, from, from, from a plot point of view, it makes no sense. From an actual, you know, imagery, it does not sit I mean, right with these standards. But all, yeah. to be fair on this film, this it didn't... It's not as bad somehow as the previous two films for where they've dated, where in mm. Goldfinger he essentially does rape Pussy Galore, yeah. and and also then no, that is the worst scene yeah, that exactly. I've ever seen. So, actually, like, I feel like with that is the worst of the sort of the how bad it got, and then I mean, Thunderball he touched up and kind then, of harassed, you know? sexually yeah. harassed the character as well. He doesn't force himself on anyone in no, this, this film. One, it's just <laughs> what a relief. I think um, there's maybe a bit of um, a lack of chemistry behind. Imagine between... having to say that scene. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't force himself on anyone this time. He just yeah. he just culturally there, appropriated. There, there was a but there in fairness. And it was, it was. I mean, the all the women in this film, the the Japanese women, they were all almost always for absolutely no reason in bikinis and very scantily yeah, yeah, dressed. That's and where it like. That's is, where yeah. someone's obviously gone right. These girls, this is this thing yeah. doesn't look good enough. These girls need to be in bikinis. Like the, the ones that were that were performing the the, the like makeup pecs. and the plastic surgery yeah. on them to make them look Japanese were all doing so. From what I remember in bikinis and <laughs> yeah. then his um, yeah like the engineers and don't, yeah. don't get so the Japanese female engineers were all yes. in bikinis as well the and Japanese, then like, Kissy his wife that whole scene where they were investigating the volcano for absolutely no reason again she's in a bikini and you're going oh why? Why and is that Bond practical? Had this what ridiculous, is ridiculous? Like properly buttoned up to the top button shirt on and stuff. And yeah, it's, like it's not even because it's hot. Do you know what I mean? But Bond. I mean, I think this film was saved a wee bit by the fact that it was so preposterous. Every time Bond came on the screen with this stupid, like weird, like it was almost like a mushroom haircut. Yeah. <laughs> like 
It looked like a ch- like a weird yeah. kid or it something. Yeah, like good. Japanese Beatles tree. I almost expected him to open his mouth and literally. I mean, you've seen those horrible posters from like World War Two where you had like Japanese people with like really closed eyes and like big buck teeth or whatever. You expected them to have. It was almost like they had turned Bond into the most po- negative caricature imaginable. Yes, of, of Jap- like this weird kind of like. Oh, well, I t- imagine a film a version. A monobrow and a bloody. That, you know, to be honest, it was a bit more subtle than I actually thought when you know you mentioned that he turned them Japanese. Why would they even? I mean, I, I just think it from a plot point of view, it's so stupid. I know. I remember I used to because my dad told me about this film before I saw it, and it used to actually really enrage him. It used to bring it up how much he hated it, Bond turning Japanese, and I think he was right that you know it's silly and unnecessary and like <laughs> yeah. what did it actually achieve what did well, they achieve it all washed off did it not all wash off in the sea part it did, it did I seem did. to yeah um, I think that there was there of that in the book I know that they didn't use it much was well I've not read it uh, Andy my brother has read it recently and he says it's a very good book and he's like me he like he often prefers you know the more grounded Bond but, he, but that did he, he told me that was in I, the book I think yeah. that's like a side of Bond I, I think I prefer like not I, I have a massive appreciation for it. its craziness and stuff so it's 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 all fun but yeah silliness like that where it has no sense even in the plot you know it's hard to yeah, I mean, we're talking about using words like, you know, the silliness, car- I, I keep saying the word cartoonishness. To me, there's some cartoonish elements of this film. What did you guys make of, of Blofeld's henchman hands? <laughs> there has yeah. to be one indestructible henchman who yeah. bonds. It's, it's, it's like boss-level henchman, the last yeah, one I just, he's punching he him. And... He wasn't really used very much. Exactly. I don't feel it's like... I, I almost... I actually had the thought during watching the film, I was oh, they don't have a second-in-command, yeah. you know, Red Grant-style henchman. And exactly. then this guy, you're... he walked up. Yeah, and I was just like, on right. cue. Yeah. Yeah, I, had you're, to, I had um, to ask his name. You're hitting the nail on the head there. That's what I thought of it, because one of you guys asked me his name, but it's like, why don't we, for this film, let's just create Mr. sort of generic, bland... Um, strong looking henchman to just stand there not say anything just like look tough uh, and Bond just kind of the way he tossed, Bond tosses him into the piranha pool looked at the, the fight was a bit ropey for me laterally just how he threw a punch it's like it reminded me of the old school Batman with Adam West a little bit mm-hmm. same with the set although I think the set was amazing you know that that whole sequence in the vol- the hollowed out volcano reminded me a bit of like the early Batman you know uh-huh. probably there's an element of that definitely it yeah. is cartoonish but I, I, I keep thinking, well, what were 60 audiences, you know, seeing at that point? And so many things took from that that you kind of have to appreciate what they did. You know, this is the first... Obviously, it's, it feels like a massive extension of the Doctor No kind of set a little... Like, it, Doctor No had a bit of a lavish kind of... But it was bland in comparison. This was just... Yeah. multiplied and things like that well, the, the room of the piranhas actually reminded me of that was quite similar to um dr no's set where bond has dinner with dr no but i think i think also it's worth touching on here especially because this was connery's well it was supposed to be his, his last film at the time and i thought it was worth again touching upon his performance and now i did hear things like for example he was obviously you know his attitude you know, wasn't great, and apparently every time it, his relationship with Harry Saltzman, Albert Broccoli, the producers, gets so strained that apparently if they walked on set, he would kind of go and strike and not act and thing, things like that. He get fed up with the press. He said he wasn't going to do anymore, and I think it did show in his performance. I think throughout the film, I don't think he was giving his all. I feel Connery 
and that it was more like there was all this action going on around him he was kind of a passenger and a bit secondary to the action and just in some sequences just thrown in there and um just yeah just like a, a bit of a passenger i just didn't i felt he's just kind of shrugging his way through the film but i do think you know there was great there was some great parts that some of his dialogue was great he had that you know that presence and that charisma which we might find you know it maybe did miss once he left but i think it i think that did show in his in his acting in the film um i never quite noticed it's hard to tell for me sean connery seems to have a natural charisma that even him on a sort of casual i cannot put even all comes across better than a lot of actors probably good when they're trying so mm-hmm. it's hard to tell especially when we know this film had major cuts you don't know if that affected some of the chemistry it showed or any of the, the exchanges and things like that i certainly don't think it was his most i don't know his most impressive so from the earliest ones i think um probably up to goldfinger i would say were his you know some of the best but that also helps that i think those had some of just the best dialogue it's usually a lot of that as well so i don't know where the line is where it's his performance but i i I agree with you on this but i I would add another layer to this i think that uh bond what the feeling i was getting was and i've I've had this with the film so far is that he's he's on he's on the job on a different day do you know what i mean he's not the same person all the time sometimes he's going to be a bit more tired time's going by do you know what i mean i like the thought that bond has moods like the rest of us do that maybe he doesn't feel as as energetic or doesn't feel as do you know what I mean yeah that's a fair point yeah. like I think I, real yeah. characters like us for example we could go to work five days a week just, you're not diff- you're not the same on Friday as you are on Monday like yeah. I do think he looked fed up in the film at times but he's pro- he probably just, Bond was fed up I mean I like to imagine I, I like to incorporate that into my enjoyment of a film like I think to myself whatever the reason is I think well maybe Bond is Maybe he is a little bit bored and fed up with this. I think he's, right? he's lost a little of the youthful kind of... In, in the Doctor No film, especially, he, he does you look young and fresh. Uh-huh. First time you've seen him, really. And, and he's enthusiastic. Uh, there's, you know that that means they're trying everything because they want this to be a success. By the time you know that... After Thunderball, especially. You know, it's funny success. you get that with Daniel Craig as well. Like, his later Bond films, looking at them, like, I mean, they've done quite well with that, the idea of someone ageing and not being the same. If you look at Casino Royale, he's a completely different person. I think those films are weird though because I honestly don't understand what they're doing because they're by Skyfall they were trying to make him seem as if it was like him was that the one where he was trying to kind of like get his youth again like no well he'd, he'd yeah. been badly injured yeah. at the start hadn't he and he'd gone off and, and drank and taken drugs and destroyed his body pretty yeah. much I but, think uh, yeah yeah but anyways on Connery um, I, I, th- I thought he was fine I didn't quite see an amazing performance there wasn't a scene that I was like bloody hell he's killed it there but I didn't see him I didn't notice any real like oh he's just phoning it in there I liked the bit where he was dead that was good <laughs> yeah I thought I liked <laughs> quite that. convincingly still I know Definitely. I thought um, I think Connery had he had um, put on a bit of weight by that point he maybe had a cheeseburger too many I thought yeah, did did the, the wardrobe could have done him justice a bit more I feel when he was in the volcano the, the kind of clothes he was wearing it looks like he was wearing his pyjamas jogging around the volcano and that is the way he moved too as well that gave me the impression that he maybe he maybe seemed bored and uninterested he was just kind of jogging around at a relatively sedate pace for me you know and the likes of, if you look at it for example maybe like and it you was know, quite the, high stakes as well I mean he was saving the world from literal nuclear Armageddon between yeah. the, like Russia and the United States so it wasn't like an it wasn't just like a hench like not a henchman a, a crazy megalomaniac stealing gold do you know what I mean? This was a proper 
world ending event if it went wrong yeah. alright is there anything else we want to touch on before we get to rating oh yeah the extras in the helicopter oh, what right. was that uh, you... don't remember that Gordon, you was it yourself or Fran? That no, it wasn't me that said this. No, no. no. you guys are gonna burn me at the stake, Oh, hang on, we're not going there, are we? <laughs> oh, can we not record it at least and see how uh, Steve feels about it? No, I, I made, I made the fair. I like the point. Observation. I, it was I would funny. call it an observation that quite often Bond films you do the same actor can get used repeatedly. I don't know to to save money to. They think they think it's shortcuts and maybe the audience don't notice. And I, I thought in the helicopter scenes, maybe they'd done that. The it just looked to me as if it was the same guy over and over again, but it was meant to be a different guy. And I, like I said, I think if you look at the mouth, and I've seen this film a lot. I agree with you, Gordon. I actually, that's the thing. That's the stupid thing about this whole bringing this up. But I actually agree. I think they probably did save some money by using the same cut, like the same scene. Sorry, like a few times, but the same person. But it just it. There was something about it that tickled me, so I didn't want it to be lost forever. What, the, the actor in the helicopter looked the same as lots of other extras? Uh-huh, yeah. The Japanese man looked the <laughs> yeah. same as the other Japanese man? Yeah. You can see why I was slightly uncomfortable with going there. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's an outrageous allegation. The thing is, though, this is, this is <laughs> really? a good example, actually, Lies of how you can make a good... You can make a point that's... Per- you, you can make a... Anybody can do this. Like You can make a point that is entirely valid and actually has is probably true, but... It, depending on how you frame it, it can sound completely terrible. Do you know what I mean? It's it's crazy. But it's, like I agree with like I agree with Gordon on this. But um Is there anyone's but humor's what, like that, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, what's your favourite scene? Yeah, let's favorite? change the subject. Aye, what's your favourite scene? <laughs> well done, Nicely Steve. done, yes. <laughs> that was a very segue. subtle segue. Yeah, I need to work on them. Uh, Steve, do you have a particular scene or I'm moment? I'm trying to think. Or do you want to look at your notes first and I'll get... <laughs> no, no, I, um, the, oh, I think... Any the, funny notes? This the one I'm that... glad I'm not sitting <laughs> Nothing I'm massively funny that I can see all that, I think. I see it again, the, yeah. I suppose that the scene that I think most did it for me was the first time you see inside the volcano mm. and it's the the massive layer and just the the huge cavernous space yeah. and the people running about and that's the one you realize hang on that's an actual set that mm-hmm. that particular set the first time you see that is phenomenal so yeah. i think for me that was my kind of highlight um visually fran i agree with steve basically Oh, wow, that's a lot of thought you've put into that answer. Thank you for that. <laughs> well, I, I can't always be an erudite and original guy. Do you have a second guy. favourite scene then? Yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, this is, that's what sticks in my head. Right, like, okay. All right. And All right. I, I agree with his reasoning behind it as well. Right, okay. Gordon, favourite scene was this? Favourite scene or moment or anything like that? You have to say you agree with Steve as well. Just <laughs> to annoy Steve. <laughs> I particularly enjoyed the, the Blofeld reveal, and I enjoyed the yep. I enjoyed the the bit of the when you get the first glimpse of Bond in in bed with it with this woman where you know it goes straight for the cut it just it goes from this it's like almost like a kind of G eight summit this um, emergency meeting between the the world superpowers to you know Bond <laughs> doing what Bond does best I mean you know in in terms of the the Bond formula you know the that and just the the formula from the first few films again with the Blofeld reveal, I love the way it was built up from not seeing him. The first few, probably the Blofeld reveal for me was the was probably the best. I agree with Steve. <laughs> uh, <laughs> After all that, yeah. uh, no, I mean no, I do agree with Steve. The sets were the main takeaway for me. Hang on, 
Steve and Francis. No, you can't. Not like Steve is the only one with the idea, is it? I was um, first with the idea. I'm yeah, taking it. Yeah, it's a copyright well, work. Exactly. Uh, but the other thing, if I'm not going to give that, because I'll come up with a second one, uh, would be the sort of aerial dogfight uh, in the sort of in the mini with Little Nelly, which we've not yeah. mentioned. That's true. Yes, um, that was probably. I, I mean, some of it. It was a bit old-fashioned editing and stuff like that, but I still liked it, especially when the Bond, you know, the the real Bond music kicked in. And, and, uh, some of it was quite daring. I mean, I was I, when I was watching it, I was thinking, how did they how did they actually film some of this? Because some of it you you saw the two planes and shot together, mm-hmm. which I thought was incredible, yeah, really. Yeah. So that was for me. That was I liked that the spectacle of it and things like that. And that yeah, it felt you know them doing something again different from Thunderball which was you know 10 minute 15 minute stretches of scenes underwater here we're going to do but so much more action packed it worked better for me in the air um, so yeah I like that and it was although there was some obvious model work there with with the choppers also was there? What, yeah there was to me it, it was quite so clear but, the, but also but also the little there was a real little Nelly there was a real miniature helicopter and there were the, I think it was its builder or inventor actually piloted it and he had to make about 80 flights all in all to get all the, the right sequences filmed for the for the movie and one of not him but I think it was one of the I think it was a second unit director one of the second unit filming team actually I think he lost a foot uh, during the helicopter filming sequences another crazy there's a lot of crazy things happening during the making of this film also the the main kind of production team like um, Ken Adam the production designer Saltzman and Broccoli Lewis Gilbert, a few of them did a sort of recce to Japan in the early stages of like pre-production, and apparently they were just about to go on a plane to go to the next I was, place. Yeah. You finish it for me, Steve. I used to, oh, no, you can't thinking about the story. The... No, I just had drawn a memory. I remember the story. Essentially, they were due to fly out, and was it to see the sets or something? I, I can't yeah. remember. But the plane, they, they ended up seeing a, a demonstration of like a ninja fight or something like that a ninja demonstration so then they all decided we'll get the next one and that plane crashed and all 25 people on the plane died thank god which is wow that how you know that could have changed the entire it's horrific but that would have changed you know a lot of because these were some key players on that you know you could have never got bond again you think the whole chain of events from dr no even if like sean connery hadn't been hired if he'd been busy or something or they settled and one of the the other dudes, you know, I imagine, um, you know, just it could have been Doctor No was the first film, and then that was it. Cause it didn't do very well. Say if Sean Connery hadn't been in it, the same as if imagine, you know, the main production team had died. You know, could they've continued the the Bond series? It's yeah. it's nuts. Yeah. Um. Okay. I'm gonna call it because we're over an hour now, and we still haven't rated the film. Now we're gonna rate the film. Fran, I knew you were going. To, I knew you were going to do this. <laughs> Well, if you really don't want to go first, then I'll let somebody else do it. I can, I can go first. Right, Fran, right. what do you okay. rate this film? Well... Oh, by the way, uh, to mix things up, we also introduced Half Stars. Uh, well, yeah. Last year. I'm glad, that you, <laughs> I'm glad you did. Steve McCall was adamant on a Half yeah. Star, and I decided to go with it as I'm, well. So now, yeah. it com- you know, if you want to bring in a Half Star, feel well, free. I'm glad you did, because it, it's perfect, for especially for a franchise this long. <laughs> But I think this film for me is going to have to be a three, straight up. Okay. It's not bad. It's not the best. It's not. Do you know what I mean? It doesn't yes. need a 0.5 or whatever. But I mean, I, I like it. I don't want that to to infer that I 
didn't. I think a three you know I mean? is still a decent recommendation. There's a yeah. qualified element to it. A caveat. I'd, I'd watch it again. Yeah. I would, but maybe not all the, t- all the time no. or anything. But I mean, I'd certainly not skip it if I was watching all the Bond films. All right, Steve. I agree. I'm going three out of five on this one. And those three stars are pretty much entirely based on how the film looks. Because mm-hmm. it was it was a little formulaic it was a little repetitive film five we're starting to see the same things over and over again but this film looked brilliant Mm -hmm. so i think all three stars are my uh, three out of five is going for how this film looked i'll go next and i completely agree with steve and fran i suppose this time thank you uh thank you very much (laughs) yeah for me this was a film that was its aesthetic was was its main strength um ken ken adam set was the 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 main reason for that as well i think the japanese setting changed things up and added a fresh element to it um you know i think where it it probably fell down is some of the editing that we've spoke about maybe um, plot was a little off at points with the whole Japanese um, him, Sean Connery t- trying to be a Japanese person, things like that. It kind of didn't quite work. There was a campness that you can accept, and then and you know Goldfinger and his over elaborate plans and stuff that you can get on board with, and then there was just ones where it doesn't work. And to me, that some of that did that. Mm-hmm. Blofeld, great introduction. I wasn't keen on his voice like we discussed earlier, but overall, I think the reveal was great, and his you know villain slayer was awesome. Probably not as much emphasis. The gadgets weren't quite as memorable this time, maybe. We've not really discussed them at all. Of everything, my favourite gadget was the least high-tech one, which was a massive magnet hung from a helicopter yeah. that they used to get rid of the... Um, the, uh, yeah. the the car that was tailing them through Tokyo. I mean, what a way to get rid of a car as well. I mean, couldn't you just knock it off the road? Let's just lift it and fly it off into yeah. the sea. I mean, I just, you know. What Tanaka's assistant was um, said was, can we please get the usual reception? Ah. So that's how they commonly deal with cars in the sea. I mean, think about it. That's I mean, what I love. The Bond humour there. And that's, there's little <laughs> moments I had some great humour and I did laugh at points. So that's one thing going in its favour. Uh, the one, a couple of one-liners were okay. Sean, uh, you know, um, I think the the moment when he gets that his drink mixed up, I think was one of my favourites. You know, <laughs> starting to not shaking, isn't it? Right? Yeah. yeah, I think that. I, I don't know yeah. why I like that. Yeah. That was annoying, kind of like you know, five films in now we're gonna sort of twist the thing. That so, actually yeah. showed quite an interesting little glimmer of Bond's personality. That he's on occasion Bond will just let it slide. And also, like you know, you learned he knew some about Saki. It was at ninety eight point four degrees. It's got uh, <laughs> or something like that. It's what? Yeah. He mentioned about the sake, like you know. Yeah, that's like that. I mentioned Bond's knowledgeable about small details, about just so mm-hmm. many um, fields of you know interest in that's the world, so, so many like hobbies, so many different um, you know animals, drinks, uh-huh. locations, guns. He, he just knows a little bit about everything, but and he can be a bit of a smart. I'm like fascinated by this, so it's got to be at a certain temperature. Uh, the optimum yep. temperature, the yeah, snobbish element of it was probably that's So that's snob. obviously like... That's um, an, I think that's an inflammatory Fahrenheit, thing. then. Fahrenheit, it would be yes. so it's like room Fahrenheit, temperature. Fahrenheit, almost. sorry, Fahrenheit 90. Yeah, I was like, yeah, well, it's either one thing or the other, <laughs> yeah. do you know what I mean? But yeah, anyways, those moments like that. So I would give it three stars straight down the line, qualified recommendation, but not to the heights of Goldfinger or even those first two films for me where you're getting introduced to Bond and I love just the, the grounded nature of those films. Gordon? Yeah, um, how many stars did you give it? I must have missed how many stars you gave it. So far, it's an all-round three. All-round three, I'm going to give it a three. 
Wait. We're good. for the first time we've got an all-round wow. agreement round figure three out of five. So I'm gonna give it a three. I thought it was a very enjoyable film. Despite being one of the more forgettable films in the Bond franchise for me, I think a lot of it is due down to, to Connery's performance. I think he, he seems at times just a bit slow and cumbersome in this film. And it's like, um, I do feel he's carried a bit by the story, carried by the action, even carried by the the supporting cast. I, th- I think Henderson's you know, a great supporting actor, maybe underused. I think Tiger Tanaka's great. And like a lot of these Bond allies that he spends large portions of the film with, he's, he's a great you know, level of charisma. And, uh, you know, I thought I, I loved Aki's performance as well in it, as who she essentially worked for Tanaka. I don't think the plot was as well thought out as previous Bond films. There's something about this film. It just, uh, a lot of the first four films really, like, draw me in like a magnet. And this film is just not one that I'll tend to pick up and watch so much. There was kind of, you know, comic book elements to it, I do feel. And, yeah, um... You know, not the best henchman with hands, you know. Mr. Tough Guy doesn't really say anything, doesn't really do anything. That's just a small thing. But uh, yeah, I, I do. I, I did en- enjoy it. I think um, there's maybe maybe more of the good elements of the book could have come out in this. Uh, obviously, Roald Dahl completely reinvented this You Only Live Twice story, you know. That's but, like the shock at the end of this podcast. Everyone's like, what? I did know. we talk about that at the, the, the previous bit? And the, Actually, I thought we talked... Did we talk about that in the intro? Yes. Yeah, ah, we did. Right, okay. I thought we talked about that casually. I'd forgotten mm. that. But I, I'm still surprised. Like, I didn't. I had no idea Rodal was ever involved in James yeah. Bond. Yeah. And the big thing for me going away from this is we know, we know this was Connery's last film for now anyway. So it's, you know, a change of actor. You know, how how's, oh, yeah. how's it going to go after that? And, you know... We've got used to Sean Connery, obviously, for five films. And, and after, you know, quite a lot an elaborate plot, a fantastic big budget volcano set, you know, what levels are going to go into is with it, Her Majesty's Secret Service? So we're about service? to hit the first time we're not with is Sean Connery. It's now his Lazenby. So uh, on Her Majesty's yeah. Secret Service, next, Sean Connery will return in Diamonds Are Forever after it. Because Lazenby, um, well, we'll talk about it more in the next That's podcast. It's so interesting to have a different Bond and then back to the same Bond again. Yeah, this will be this will be fun. We'll be now talking about a different Bond. So it's it's still you know you could count this as the same era. It's, this is still in the, this is the last sixties film, isn't it? Sixty nine. One of Majesty's year was sixty nine. Yeah. So only two years later as well. And it's interesting how. Um, it's about it's, it was a wee bit of a wait between this podcast and the last one the same as Bond films were coming out every year from Doctor No up to up to Thunderball and then there was a year's break and our podcast a wee bit of a break as well so which, I, was, which was kind of fitting you know right, we'll, have a, we'll have a wee bit of wait then for this next one and then but uh, I was going to say so we've now got to the last segment then which is we've now had five films of Sean Connery in the role right so I think we should all now have perfected our oh. Sean Connery <laughs> accent. Oh, I thought you were just going to say, what's your favourite Connery film as a retrospective? But nope. So I'll have, uh, I'll pick one of you, well, well, we'll take it in turns, and I'll have you say a number between one and four, and um, you pick the number, and I'll find the quote, and you have to say the line in your best Sean Connery. Deal. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Okay, Fran, seeing as though you just uh, decided... I'm always the first, isn't I? (laughs) Right, number two. Number two, that's the number you've chosen. That's fantastic, right. Okay. Uh, Okay, your line is, there's a saying in England, where there's smoke, 
there's fire. There's a saying in England, <laughs> where there's smoke, there's fire. That was actually quite good. That was quite good. I'll give you that. That was decent. <laughs> okay, Gordon, what uh, what number you want to say? I'll be number one. Number one, right. I'm glad you chose that, because that's the only one I've prepared. I'll need to find the last <laughs> two quotes. Was uh, that even a real quote? Was that a real quote? Yeah, yeah. yeah. That was that would be quite funny before. if you just... Yeah. Uh, okay, so number one, you've probably seen it on my phone, didn't you? No, no. That's a Smith and Wesson, and you've had your six, sorry. So I'm not allowed back in the podcast. I've had my six because we've done six podcasts. Is that what you're saying here? That's what yeah. I'm saying this is like a get your shot <coughs> on it. <coughs> clear, clear my throat. throat. Yep. Who's the cooking? <laughs> yeah. That's a Smith and Wesson, and you've had your six. <laughs> that's quite good. That's not bad. That's yeah, not that's bad. Good. Yeah. That's quite good. That might have was like uh, Dirty Harry as well. Like you know, that whole thing where he's like, you feel lucky, pal. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, Steve, you want to be up next? Which one of the two that you haven't prepared should I pick? Yeah. I'm going to go number four. I've got... Right, okay. Uh, you okay. forgot the best line out of that film. Don't get soap in my eye. Do you remember that <laughs> when he was getting when he was getting washed? The... the the scandal yeah. of bad girls. Yeah. The that like don't get soap in my eye. I, I thought about something else there. Yeah. <laughs> Dirty boy. Think about it. I'd rather not. Right, bear with me a second. We'll Listen, without this. Steve's control for two seconds, we're all just going down the gutter. <laughs> <laughs> right, just trying to get a, a nice enough size quote. I hope none of the kids end up teaching it ever here. Though, so. Ah, here we go. Right, Steve, I've got a good one. Right. Okay. My dear, something else. Sorry, my dear girl, don't flatter yourself. What I did this evening was for Queen and Country. You've given Steve the long. I know. I know. <laughs> if you can remember that, so it's my dear girl, don't flatter yourself. What I did this evening was for Queen and Country. My dear girl, don't flatter yourself. <laughs> What I did this evening was for Queen and Country. <laughs> Brad, that was are... no, that was all. That was that was that was a It's a very sinister bond. I bit, felt like you were was, talking to me, and I felt kind of let down. I thought oh. it was a bit too Glaswegian. I think it was, was a bit. Oh man, see some. Okay. There's some cool lines he has from so many of his other films. Like it, I saw Highlander recently. You cannot die in a cloud. You're immortal. Do you remember he was on The Rock with Nicolas Cage as well, like years Honestly, later? You need to find a quote for me from uh, Goldfinger. From Goldfinger? Because uh, it's less fun when I can just pick the quote and then... Uh, so just. So one of them is, I just... Um, yeah, the, the obvious one anyway. Not the, don't do the obvious one. The, do you expect me to talk? All that. Manners, odd job. I thought you always took your hat off to a lady. Okay. <clears throat> Manners, odd job. I thought you always took your hat off to a lady. <laughs> that was good. That was actually good. Was good. I can hear that. that. Yeah. yeah. Don't act surprised, right? Do you remember we did Sean Connery and Captain Kirk before? It's hard when you've got a, an audience. It's, it's hard. It's to like tell. you're not in gravity anymore. No, kind of yeah, me and Fran used to do terrible radio film, plays and we'd put on voices. Yeah. Uh, it's some amazing lines in The Rock, like. Last time I swam this channel, I was your age. I'm fucked either way. <laughs> <laughs> okay, all right. That's uh, that's us. We've uh, gonna. This is gonna be a long one. Um, we're probably. Uh, I don't know if we'll be able to bring the the impression section back for the Lazenby. But we've only got one film out, yeah. but we'll see. I don't even know what he sounds like. I mean, what are we gonna do? Is uh, he an Australian? Isn't he? Good day, my Double O Seven. All right, then that'll do. That's a We're gonna sign off saying Gordon. I love you. I love you. <laughs> <laughs>
I love you too. Did anyone get that? That was a lie. <laughs> You've got to have seen the film. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye course today it's nothing i can put on record i'll put it that way all right okay <laughs> that sounds really sinister what have you been doing <laughs> well basically i'll chat about these things casually but i wouldn't record it yeah you, you don't have to say what course in class you're doing you can just say your course was good today oh yeah yeah i know i'm just trying to be entertaining uh, before you guys got here i mean fran was telling me his wild student stories don't tell anyone that <laughs> <laughs> not on the not on the and you're making book. us all jealous because we wish we were still at uni mm. and weren't these old green guys <laughs> it's kind of sad in a weird way right because it's like you don't often get the chance to go back in time to the same uni you were at 15 years ago but it feels good and bad simultaneously it's like you just know time has passed that is, I mean? that is yeah I can imagine that would be really strange because uh-huh. if it was a different uni it would be but it's the same union the same bar looks the same Ever, you know. So you I'm getting well jealous. I, I don't oh. be. <laughs> talking, going to switch Steve, uh, how's your day been? How is uh, how is today? <clears throat> today has been far too quiet. There is bugger all news going on. Wednesday, Thursday, perfect. Friday, nothing. Aye, so yeah. I have been working a lot. I have my usual. I'm getting used to. Tell you what, the BBC car park is a great place for a nap. It turns out. <laughs> I read. Yeah. It took me a double take when I was reading the message. <laughs> you just woke up. <laughs> yeah, I come out of work at two into my car, seats back, little sort of crack the windows down slightly, quick nap, wake up. Energy drink, I'm sorted again. You, you convert your car with like nice cushions or something. Oh, that I is a shout! Back seat, yeah. double down duvet. Oh, Steve's, I'm sleep, in it, that. Steve's sleeping more than my newly born nephew. <laughs> <laughs> sleep like a baby, quite literally. Okay, that will hopefully be enough. I would be text. quite worried, Gordon, if your nephew was in a car in the BBC car park. Just <laughs> there's a saying in England: where there's smoke. There's fire. That's a Smith and Wesson, and you've had your six. My dear girl, don't flatter yourself. <laughs> what I did this evening was for Queen and Country. <laughs> Manor's odd job. I thought you always took your hat off to a lady. <laughs> that was good. <laughs> <laughs>